Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, and we'll read verses 23 to 25 this morning. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking, Lord, that you might teach us, Lord, and guide us into all wisdom, into all truth. Lord, we want to see Jesus Christ and him crucified as the power and wisdom of God unto salvation. And Lord, we know that with the eyes of the flesh, Lord, with our own natural wisdom and understanding, Lord, that these truths are too great for us. Lord, that we cannot receive and we cannot understand these things. Only your Spirit can teach us these spiritual realities and these spiritual truths. And Lord, we want to see and understand more of our great salvation, Lord, of the person and the offices of Jesus Christ, and how it is that he is able to save forever those who draw near to you through him. Lord, teach us today of the reality of Jesus as our intercessor, that even now, this very moment, as we are worshiping you, Lord, that all of our worship is acceptable to you, and that our persons are acceptable to you only on the basis of his intercession for us. So, Lord, may we see and understand that without the life of Christ in heaven, even now, interceding for us, that we would perish forever. And it is only on the basis of him that we have any standing or any acceptance in your sight. So, Lord, receive us today. And, Lord, receive our worship for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, we began this passage last week where the apostle is providing one final proof for the superiority of the priesthood of Christ over and above the Levitical priesthood. And this proof is that Jesus lives forever. We saw that the former priests existed in greater number. There was a long line of high priests beginning with Aaron and ending in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple that God provided this provision for that priesthood to ensure that the office of high priest would always be occupied. And that provision was a succession of high priests that came from the family of Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest under the former commandment. And then when he died, he passed it down to his son, Eleazar. And then when Eleazar done, he passed it down to his son, Phineas, and so on and so forth. And this continued so long as that priesthood was in, in force and so long as it was there confined to the family of Aaron. It was a necessary provision because death prevented any one individual person under the former commandment from Aaron's line from occupying the office of high priest permanently. This is one of the chief weaknesses, if this is the chief weakness, and the chief imperfection of that priesthood. No priest from Aaron's line could ever hold the priesthood permanently because death forbid any man from continuing. How can that priest deliver who himself is subjected to sin and death? 
How can that priesthood be the ultimate solution for our salvation and for the overcoming of sin and death when the high priest who occupied that office was himself still subjected to death? And so we see that there is no eternal, there is no spiritual salvation and deliverance in that priesthood, which is why we must look for another, for someone greater than Aaron. If perfection cannot be obtained by the priesthood of Aaron, then God must provide another high priest, one who is superior in every way to Aaron, one who can deliver us from sin and death, one who need not pass his priesthood to another because he is prevented by death from continuing. And this is the topic that he has taken up in Hebrews chapter 7, that God did indeed promise to send such a high priest, not after the order of Aaron, but one who would arise according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is what we find only in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus holds the office of high priest permanently because he continues forever. Death has no dominion over Christ. He cannot die. He lives forever. Therefore, he occupies the office of high priest forever. He has defeated sin and death, and therefore, he is a high priest who is able to deliver us from sin and death. It is the person of Jesus Christ. It is his indestructible life that fills the office of high priest with power so that it is effectual in the salvation of sinners. So that what the office could not do under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, it could not perfect the people and it could not take away their sin. But now the office can perfect the people and it can take away our sin. This is what we covered last week in verses 23 and 24. A comparison of the state and condition of the priesthood under the former commandment with the priesthood of Jesus Christ under the better and living hope. Now in verse 25, he's going to display the benefits. What are the benefits, the advantages, the blessings of having Jesus as our high priest? Of him holding this office permanently, of one who lives forever. What does it mean day in and day out for our salvation and for our present comfort and hope in this life. So let's pick up then. Today we'll look at Hebrews 7.25. There it says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, because he always lives to make intercession for them. Here he begins by saying, therefore, the therefore connecting to what he said previously concerning both the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Christ. Because of what he said concerning Jesus Christ, namely that he lives forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for our salvation? What does it mean for our present comfort and hope in this life? What does it mean for our faith in the salvation that will be revealed in the life to come. This is the primary purpose of the apostle, to show the eternal spiritual advantages and blessings of having Jesus Christ as our high priest, what it is that we should seek and what we should expect from him as high priest. A consideration of the person and the offices of Jesus Christ ought to improve and strengthen our faith, our hope, our comfort, right in this present life. These topics that he's dealing with in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 7, what we'll turn to in Hebrews 8 and 9 and 10, all of these things are not given to us 
merely to scratch some intellectual curiosity that we might have. These truths are essential to our faith, to our hope, to our comfort in this life. These Christian virtues, faith, hope, comfort, they will increase exponentially as we come to a proper understanding, as we consider and understand more fully the person and offices of Jesus Christ and what these things mean for our salvation. And yet, we find many times in our own day that there are very few who are willing to seek for this treasure because he has told us that these things are not for the faint of heart. These things are difficult to understand. These things take diligence, they take study, they take seriousness of mind, they take a level of maturity. And yet there are few who are willing to seek for this treasure. And there are fewer still who occupy the pulpits today who are willing to preach and teach on these great topics, these great truths associated with the gospel to communicate the depths of the wisdom and power of God found in Christ. But failure for us to seek to understand these things and failure on the part of the pastors to speak on the person and offices of Jesus Christ is to deny the people the help they so desperately need to overcome this present world for our endurance, for our perseverance, for our faith. So I have an obligation as a minister to preach and teach these things, and you have an obligation as Christians to seek as best as you can to understand the truths that are being taught here in the Word of God. Why is the Bible written for us? Why is it given to us? Is God simply just wanting to write things down for His own pleasure? Is it not written for the sake of men? Is it not written for our faith, for our benefit? And these things are central. He's dealing with the very gospel itself. He's dealing with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is the main topic of the book of Hebrews. We need to understand these things so that we can understand our own salvation and have greater confidence that if Christ is our advocate, if he is the one who is our high priest who is interceding for us, then it is impossible for our salvation to fail because it is dependent upon him. This is what we need to understand. So it's related to the previous topic. Notice next, he says, he is able, therefore he is able. That he is able speaks of two things, both that he has the will to save us and he has the power to save us. Both of these must be possessed by the high priest. The high priest must have the desire to save the people and he must have the power to save the people if the people are indeed going to be saved. A high priest who has the desire to save, but not the ability to save, is useless to the people. A high priest who has the power to save, but not the desire to save, who will not exercise that toward the people, is useless to the salvation of the people. Both of these elements are needed, and here we are assured that both of these elements, these traits, are occupied, are possessed by Jesus Christ as our high priest. Under the former commandments, the high priests that came from Aaron's family, they were lacking in both regards. Part of their imperfections as high priests were seen in that they were unwilling. Yet even the best of them at times would have been impatient with the people. At times, they would have preferred their own personal interests over and above the interest of the people because they were weak 
frail, mortal men, it was impossible for them to perfectly exercise love toward their brothers, love toward their neighbors, so that they exercise this office with perfect love toward those that they were serving. And that's with the best of them. But we know that some of them were the worst of them. And some of them used the office only for their own advantage. Some of them exploited the people. Some of them used the people in order to benefit themselves. And so many times we see with those who were evil, the high priests who took that office, they used the office for their own benefit. And even with the good ones, though they did uh, administer the office for the benefit of the people, yet they still could not do it perfectly. They could not do it with perfect love for them. And so they were weak in this way. Also, the high priests under the former commandment, they were not powerful. For sure, they did not have power over sin and death. That is obvious because what happened to all of them? They all were prevented by death from continuing in the office. They did not have the power, the ability to save the people. So even if there was a high priest who was a good man, who was a sincere man, who had true love and genuine interest in the spiritual well-being of the people, who sought to fulfill this office for their benefit and for their advantage, he could not use that office to actually bring about the salvation of the people. No matter how much he desired it, he did not have the power to use that office to actually take away their sins and to actually produce their own perfection. So none of the high priests from Aaron's line, none of those who served at the altar made on earth under the former commandment could discharge the office of high priest properly. None of them had the ability to communicate to the people what is to be expected from the office of high priest. But who is not bound by any of these limitations? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is free from all of the imperfections that plagued the priests that came from Aaron's line. Jesus is willing to save us. Jesus has agreed to take up that office for us, for our benefit. And as our high priest, he lives to serve us. And all that he performs as high priest is not for his own benefit. He doesn't have to think of his own sins. He doesn't have to think of his own needs and his own imperfections. All his mind is focused and occupied upon the objects of his love. He lives for us, to serve us as high priest, and he discharges it for our benefit. 1 Timothy chapter 1.15. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. There it says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And did he come into the world unwillingly? Did he come reluctantly? Did he come kicking and screaming into the world? No, he came willingly to give his life as a ransom for us. So does Jesus, as our high priest, have the desire and the will to save us? Absolutely he does. He lives for us. But if he only possessed the will to save us, but not the power to save us, then his desires would fall to the ground. His desires would not be fulfilled in us. 
But Jesus is able to save in both regards. He has the will, but he also has the power. He has his strong, mighty arm so that what he desires to do for us as high priest, he is able to accomplish all of these things. Our high priest is not some weak, frail, sinful, mortal man. But our high priest is one who, though he is fully man, he is also fully God. And as fully God, he is the mighty God, the God who can do all things, who can do things that are impossible for men to do. He is powerful and he is strong so that he is able to accomplish for us what the high priest under the former commandment could never do. With man, it is impossible. It is impossible for any man to take away the sins of another man. It is impossible for any man to perfect another man, to make that man righteous, to justify him of all of his sins. This is impossible for any man to do. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. God can do all things, and there is nothing that is too difficult for him. What was impossible for men to accomplish through the office of high priest, because it was occupied by weak, mortal men, it becomes possible when one occupies that office who is both fully God and fully man, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is able to do so because he has the will to save us and he has the power to save us. Next, notice this is exactly what he desires to do. He is able to save forever. He is able to save forever. Jesus has the ability to save us. That we need saving communicates that there is some danger. There is some evil. There is something that has come upon us that we must be delivered from. We must be saved from something. And what is it that we must be saved from? It is sin and all of its consequences. All of the consequences that have come upon us because of our sins. If we will have peace with God, if we are going to draw near to God, then we must be delivered from our sins. We must be delivered from the dreadful curse that has come as a result of our own transgression of the law of God. In Matthew 1.21, there, speaking of Jesus, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He came to save us from our sins. And in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The curse of the law is a consequence of our sin, that we deserve the judgment and the condemnation of death. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 speaks of Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come the wrath of God that is coming upon sinful men because of their sins and their iniquities that they have committed against God. This is what Jesus came and is willing to save us from, to save us from our sins. Is this an easy task to accomplish? It is no easy task to save men from sin, to take sin away, to crush the head of the serpent, to conquer death, to fulfill the law, to make peace with God, to secure our pardon, to purchase grace and glory, everything that is necessary for our salvation. Jesus has accomplished all of it for us. And it took 
great power, a great work to save sinners. He is the only one who can do this. It is only Jesus as our high priest who can save us from our sins. And this is why God has appointed no other means by which a man can be saved, only through Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else, because there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we must be saved through him, and it is only through Christ that we can be delivered from sin and all of its consequences. We must be convinced, first, that we need to be saved. Right? It is not the well who need the physician, but those who are sick. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, in reality, we know, according to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 22, that all men are sick. All men have the disease of sin. All men are under sin and its consequences. All men need to be delivered. However, what do most men entertain concerning themselves? That they are good, they are fine, that they are righteous, that they're going to make it, that they can do it through their own strength. So men must first be convinced that they are under sin, that there is a great danger, a great evil that hangs over them, and that they are themselves children of wrath. This is what the Philippian jailer came to understand concerning his own situation. In Acts 16.30, when he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? To be saved. To be saved there doesn't mean, Sirs, what must I do to have better self-esteem? Sirs, what must I do to not be poor anymore, to have a better social condition in this life? Sirs, what must I do to have a better education so that I can get a better job? This is not the salvation that the Bible is speaking of. The salvation that the Bible is speaking of is not that you feel bad about yourself, but it is that God is against you, that God's wrath is kindled against us because of our sins. We are at war with God, and the wrath of God is coming for us, and it is going to consume us unless we are delivered and saved from our sins. People must see that they are under the judgment of God. Then and only then will they say, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So we must be convinced, first, that we need to be saved. And then we must be convinced that the only way that we can be saved, the only way that we can be delivered from this great wrath to come, is through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How can this man save me? How can Jesus Christ Save me from my sins. And what we learn in Hebrews chapter 7, it is through his offices that Jesus delivers us and saves us from our sins. And it is especially true of the office of high priest. Without Jesus becoming our high priest, we cannot be delivered and saved from our sins. This is the way appointed by God for him to deliver us. He saves us by offering his own body and his own blood for us. Every high priest, high priest appointed from among men, right? He is obligated to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is what Jesus did. He offered his own body and he shed his own blood. He laid down his life for us. And those who are called, who, whose eyes have been opened to these realities, Jesus becomes for us 
the wisdom and the power of God. We see in his person and we see in his offices that this is the only remedy for my sin and for all of the consequences that have come upon me because of my own sins against God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. This wisdom is foolishness to the world. It is foolishness and offense to both Jews and Greeks, but not to those who are called and to those who are being saved. For us, in Christ, in seeing Him as our high priest and seeing Him as the sacrifice for our sins, we must see this as the wisdom and as the power of God unto salvation, as the only way that we can be delivered from sin and its consequences. 1 Corinthians 1.23, We preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those who are called from both the Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and he is the wisdom of God. He is the way that we can be saved. Notice as well that he says he is able to save forever. To save forever. Some translations will use the word completely or save to the uttermost, those who believe. And this is a description. It is defining for us. It is qualifying the salvation that comes through Christ. That he saves forever or that he saves to the uttermost communicates a couple of realities concerning this salvation. The first is this. The salvation accomplished by Jesus for sinners will be brought to a perfect state. It will be completed in the life to come. In the end, every hint of sin will be completely eradicated from the life of God's people. All of the consequences of sin will be removed and all of it will be taken away. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more miseries. There will be no more flesh. There will be no more death. There will be no more Satan and demons to harass and to tempt us. Everything that has come upon sinful men because of our rebellion will be thoroughly and completely obliterated by Christ so that in his people there will not be even the, a spot of sin that is remaining in them. It says in Revelation 22.3 that there will no longer be any curse. This is in the perfect state, in the new heavens and new earth, in the Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. There will no, not be any curse there. And the curse is the result of our sin against God. That there is no curse there, must mean, it necessitates, that there is no sin there. It says in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. The salvation that he has begun within us, he will bring it to its perfection. And he will do this not for some of his sheep, but for all of his sheep. Every single one of his people all of the sheep that have been granted to him and given to him by the Father, everyone that he has begun the good work of salvation in, he will bring that salvation to a perfect state. How many of his sheep does he lose? He loses zero. Not one of them will be lost by Christ. And he does not give to us 90% salvation, 
99% salvation, 99.999% salvation. He saves us perfectly so that all of our being is brought before God and is sanctified in his sight. 100% perfect salvation. If there is anything lacking, if there was only a small fraction, a 0.001% of sin remaining in us, then we would not be fit to be in the presence of God. We must be absolutely perfect. And Jesus is able to save us completely or save us thoroughly, save us to the uttermost. Secondly, this salvation, not only will it be thorough, but it'll also be eternal, right? If it is going to be perfect, then it also must be eternal. It cannot be for a duration of time, for a limited period of time. It is not that Jesus saves us completely for a million years. And then at the end of that million years, we revert back to the state of sin. If that were the case, that would not be a perfect salvation. He would not be making his people perfect. A complete salvation that is limited to a period of time is not itself perfect. So it must be thorough. It must touch every aspect of our being and it must eradicate every bit of sin. And it also must endure for all eternity. It is never ending in its duration. And this is what Jesus does for us. He perfects us for all eternity, for all time. We'll never go back and we'll never know sin again. He saves us completely and he saves us eternally so that the salvation accomplished is brought to a state of perfection. Whatever hindrances, Right? Whatever difficulties, whatever obstacles lie in the way of our full and final salvation, the Lord is able, by virtue of his ministry as, as high priest, to remove everything that is opposed to our salvation and to bring his work in us to an eternal state of perfection. Next, notice, who does he do this for? He says there, it is for those who draw near to God through him. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. All men will not experience this salvation. It will only be seen in some men. And according to our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was asked, will there be many who are saved or only a few? It is only a few. It is those who are on the hard, narrow way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. We know from John chapter 5, verse 40, there when he's speaking to his own people, he says, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. That there were those and there remains those in our own day who are unwilling to come to Christ. Those who refuse to come to him, those who refuse to draw near to God through Christ, they will not be saved by him. They will not experience the blessings of of the salvation that he has accomplished on the cross. He saves to the uttermost. He fulfills the office of high priest only for the ones who draw near to God through him. Now, this drawing near is both the initial drawing near to God for salvation and then the continual drawing near to God in worship. Those who come to God for salvation must come through who? We have to come through Christ. This is the only way, only through faith in Christ. And then those who draw near to God to worship him, who must they come through as well? 
They must come through Jesus Christ, only through faith in Him. Our worship is acceptable and pleasing to God only when it is offered by faith in Jesus Christ. It is faith in Christ, both His person and His offices, that makes our person and our worship acceptable to God. And these always go hand in hand. Drawing near to God through Christ for salvation will necessarily result in a life of continual drawing near to God through Christ in worship. And those who refuse to do this, they are completely deceived. They are deceived who look to Christ to save him, yet refuse to come to God to worship him. And yet there are many in our day who suffer under such delusions. Many who claim to have an interest in the salvation of Christ, but who never give themselves over in worship to God by him and through him. Are there not many professing Christians even today who cannot do the simplest of tasks, who cannot even go for one hour a week to meet with God's people and to offer worship to God? They won't do that in the public. This is one of the simplest, easiest steps of being a Christian is to show up, to just show up and to worship God. They won't do that once a week regularly, and they don't do it throughout the week in their own personal life. What is this drawing near to God that they're doing then if they are not coming to worship Him? Faith without worship is not true faith. It is a vain, useless faith. Worship without faith is not true worship. It is a vain and useless worship. These always go hand in hand. And it is a reminder to us that our persons are always and only acceptable to God because of Jesus Christ. Because He is our representative. Because He is our surety. This is what gives us our standing before God. Are we not today meeting and drawing near to God? Are we not coming to worship God? Well, we're not perfect people. We still have sins. All of you this week, I mean, I don't know this uh, intimately, but I'm sure of this, that all of you have failed miserably throughout the week. All of you have committed sins throughout this week. You're not a perfect people, and I am not a perfect person either. So how can we imperfect people draw near to God and worship Him? Only through Jesus Christ. Our worship today is acceptable to God only through Jesus Christ. Our persons are acceptable to God each and every day, every second of every day, only through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are called to serve God. We are called to obey God. We are called to worship God. But if our servants and if our obedience and if our worship is going to be pleasing to Him, then it must be free from all sin. And this can only come through Jesus Christ. It is only through His blood, the shedding of His blood, that our sins can be taken away. So whatever we do for God or to God, we must do through Him, through Christ. It must proceed from faith in Him. Again, today we have gathered for worship. We have sang praises to His name. We have offered prayers to Him. We are now hearing and meditating upon His Word. All that we do must be done by faith in Christ, right? Our worship, as it comes from us, is mixed with much dross. It has many imperfections. But as our worship passes through Christ, He sanctifies it. 
He purifies it. He removes all of the imperfections, all of the dross, so that the worship becomes acceptable in the sight of God. This is why we draw near to God through Him, only through Him. We must worship God by faith in Christ. Always aware and always trusting that God receives us into His presence and God is pleased with our worship only because of Him. Without Christ, there is our high priest sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. All of our worship and all of our service would be absolutely detestable in the sight of God. And the only reason it is a pleasing aroma to Him today is because it is mixed with Christ. Because Christ is the one who sanctifies it and purifies it and makes it acceptable to God. Without faith in Christ, no man can worship God. He can show up. He can sing. He can do the things outwardly. He can go through the right motions. He might even say and do the right things. But if everything he does is not issuing from faith, it is not pleasing to God. It is not worship of God. It does not bring him any glory. Every time we meet for worship, we must have that truth, that understanding fixed in our minds. God receives me. God receives my worship only on the basis of his son, Jesus Christ. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And it's not any faith that'll do. It must be faith in who? It must be faith in Christ, in his person and his offices. It must be faith in the true Christ by which we draw near to God and that we and our worship are both pleasing and acceptable in the sight of God. Then lastly, notice in Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is able to save us completely and eternally because he always lives to make intercession for us. What is Christ doing right now, this very moment, at the right hand of God? What is he performing as our high priest right now? He's making intercession for us. He is interceding for us. Us And this is why we, in our worship, are acceptable to God, because Christ is there as our high priest, and He is the one who is interceding for us. And He does this forever. He does this always, because He always lives. There's not a moment where He ceases to do this, because death prohibits Him from doing so, and there's no other weaknesses that would keep Him from performing this for us. This is the key to his argument. It is the life of Christ that is essential for our salvation. We need a high priest who possesses eternal life. One who can occupy the office permanently, perpetually. Because we stand in constant need of a high priest. Therefore, this priest must have life in himself, and he must be able to occupy and possess that office permanently, perpetually, one who always lives to minister for us. This is the chief contrast between Aaron and between Christ. Aaron was a mortal man who was subjected to death, but Jesus Christ lives forever. He has the power of an indestructible life. 
And it is because of this indestructible life that he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Remember what it said in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. Here applying Melchizedek to Christ. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. In verse 8. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Verse 16, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. And then we remember verse 24 from last week. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. It is the life of Jesus Christ in heaven that is essential for our salvation. He lives in heaven right now as prophet, priest, and king over his church, over us. It is the life of Jesus Christ in heaven that gives to us great confidence that we shall indeed receive the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. In this life of Christ in heaven, is essential for our salvation. There are many aspects of the person of the life of Christ that are essential for our salvation. Jesus lived for us on this earth in order to fulfill all righteousness. And if Jesus did not live on this earth, could we be saved? Absolutely not. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. If Jesus did not die on the cross, could we be saved? Absolutely not. Jesus rose from the dead for our justification. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, could we be saved? Absolutely not. Now Jesus lives in heaven as our mediator, as our high priest, to make intercession for us. And if Jesus did not live in heaven right now, interceding for us, could we be saved? Absolutely not. All of it is necessary for our salvation. It is generally believed that there is no salvation without the death and resurrection of Christ, which, of course, both of them are absolutely true. Yet few consider that the life of Jesus in heaven now, where he lives forever now, is essential for our salvation. But if Christ were not there in heaven interceding for us, we could not be saved. If he were not performing the office and the work of high priest on our behalf, on our benefit. If at any moment Jesus ceased to intercede for us, we would perish at that moment. Our spiritual, eternal well-being and blessedness is dependent not only upon the earthly life of Jesus Christ, and not only upon the death that he died for us, but also dependent upon the life that he now lives in heaven for us, for our benefit, where he continually performs the office of high priest for us, always interceding for his people. 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here he speaks of it hypothetically, if anyone sins. And will we sin throughout this life? If anyone says he does not sin, what does he say in chapter 1? He says he's a liar. We all have our sins. 
And because we all have our sins, we need an advocate. We need someone standing before the Father, interceding for us, and we have that advocate only in Jesus Christ. He is performing that function for us even now. Until we are perfected, until our salvation is brought to its completion, then we always need an advocate who is interceding for us to the Father. We stand in constant need of this ministry. And this is what Jesus is doing for us this very moment, making continual, ceaseless intercession for his people. He lives to make intercession for us. When Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, he purchased at that moment everything relating to our salvation, our regeneration, our justification, our sanctification, our future glorification, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, eternal life, the blessings of future glory. Everything related or touching to our salvation was purchased for us by Jesus Christ by the offering of his body once and for all. The intercessions of Christ, this is the continual application of his sacrifice for our sins. It is the means used by God to communicate all of the benefits purchased for us by his death. All of the grace and mercy that we need to bring our salvation to perfection, all of it was secured for us by the death and resurrection of Christ. And yet we are in need of these things to be continually applied to us. That his love and his mercy and his grace be constantly communicated to us in the means that God has established for us to receive all of the blessings of his salvation is the intercession of Jesus Christ as our high priest. Now, a few considerations concerning his intercessions for us. First, this is a fulfillment of the office of high priest. Part of the job of a high priest is not only to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, right? He must do that, and that is primary, but also he must intercede on behalf of the people. He must pray to God that God will take away their sins and that God will receive this sacrifice on behalf of the people, The intercession goes along with the offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. God must receive the people on the basis of the sacrifice. Numbers 16. Numbers 16, we have an example of this. When the people sinned at the rebellion of Korah, and the plague was breaking out amongst them, and the wrath of God was coming upon them because of their sin, it was the intercession of Aaron as a type that brought an end to this temporal judgment that they experienced. He interceded for them, and he offered incense on their behalf. Numbers 16.41 says, But on the next day all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people which wasn't true. They caused it themselves. But this is the way men are. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, 
and put it in the fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for the wrath has gone forth from the Lord, the plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living, so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700, besides those who died on account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. This is what our Lord Christ does for us. He takes his stand as our high priest between the wrath of God and between us. And he is the one who quenches it so that we are not consumed by the plague, by the fury of the wrath of God. And he's making continual intercession for us, just as Aaron here interceded. And when he's offering the incense, what is the incense representative of? What does it symbolize there under the former commandment? It is the prayers of Christ. It is the prayers that go up before God, the intercessions of Christ. This is what stands between us and being consumed by the wrath of God due to our sin. Secondly, the intercessions of Jesus Christ, this is the way that he exercises his love, his compassion, his pity, his care for his people. He knows who we are. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And because he loves us, he continually intercedes for us. How can we be assured that Jesus loves us and that Jesus is working for us? We know that when he was on this earth, that he had great love for his people and he cared for them till the very end. But now his nature has undergone a transformation. Now it has been glorified. Now it has been lifted so far above us. How can we be assured that Jesus cares for us weak creatures who are here on the earth when he has been exalted above the heavens and is now at the right hand of God? Well, this is the this is the reason. This is the basis. This is what we know gives to us assurance that Jesus cares for us, that he loves us, that he has pity for us and compassion for us. He's always exercising his love for us because he always is interceding on our behalf. His love for us is constantly being exercised in practice. He does not love merely in word. He loves us in deed and in truth, because he lives to intercede for us. Thirdly, who does he do this for? Every single individual believer. In all of the particular circumstances and temptations associated with each person's life. He does not intercede for us in some generic way, just generically and generally for his people. But he does so specifically for each one and specifically for each situation. It says in John 10, 3, He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He knows particularly, specifically, intimately, every single one of his people. And he knows all of them by name. And he knows everything that you are going through. Every temptation, every trial, every hardship, every suffering. Jesus knows all of these things perfectly concerning every one of his people. And he intercedes for us in relationship to these things. 
praying that God would help us, that God would strengthen us, that God would deliver us. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what we go through. He knows what it is to be afflicted. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to face trials and temptations. And yet he went through all these things without sin. So is he able to help us, to sustain us, to come to our aid in our hour of need? Certainly he knows how to do these things. He knows exactly what we need at every moment of every day. And he is interceding with the Father on our behalf for all of these things. Fourthly, Jesus' intercession expresses his will and desire to the Father for us. He is praying for us, for our salvation, for our sanctification, for our strength, for our encouragement, for our preservation, for our deliverance. He is praying to God his will for us, his perfect will for us. Is it not a great encouragement when one of our own, especially if one of our own is known to be a godly person, a mature person in the faith, to know that one such person is praying on your behalf, offering intercession to God for you? It is a great encouragement when we pray for one another and when we intercede to God on behalf of each other. Well, how much greater is it to know that Jesus Christ is right now offering prayers to God on our behalf. Will God the Father deny the desires of His Son? Will He deny to give to Him the good things that He asked for on our behalf? It is impossible. If the effective prayer of a righteous man is able to accomplish much, according to James chapter 5, 16, then how much more the effective prayers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of the man, Christ Jesus? We know that God will grant to him all of the desires of his heart. And Jesus desires nothing less for us than our full, complete, perfect salvation. Can it fail? It is impossible for it to fail. That's where our hope comes from. This is our encouragement in this life. It is that Christ is there praying for us and God will not deny him, but all of his desires will be accomplished. It is the promises of God that are in the lips of Christ, in the mouth of Christ. This is what gives us great hope. This is what gives us encouragement to press on in this life and to know that everything God has promised to give to us, it will be completed eventually. It's just a matter of time, and we know that because Christ is the one there interceding for us. As our high priest... Jesus is moved with compassion for us. He knows that we have little strength. He knows how feeble and frail that we are. He knows that we are buffeted on every side. He knows how great our enemies are. And his affections are aroused on our behalf. He is moved with love, with mercy, with compassion, with, with pity for his people. So that he is continually offering prayers to God on our behalf. He does so that all of our sins may be pardoned 
that all of our temptations may be subdued, that all of our sorrows will be removed, that all of our trials will be sanctified, and that ultimately our persons will be saved. And he does this continually as our high priest, and in so doing, he is in constant, never-ending acts of love and mercy toward us. And with one so loving, so compassionate, so powerful as our Lord Jesus Christ, he's the one that's watching over us. He is the good shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep, and with him watching over us, is there any prospect that our salvation will not be completed? It's never going to happen. We can rest secure in the arms of our Savior. And this is why Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, that we ought to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. This is our consolation in this present life. This gives us hope. This gives us comfort. This gives us the desire to persevere and to press on knowing that in the end, Jesus will give to us all that he has promised because the Father will not deny his Son and his Son is our High Priest who is exercising this ministry on our behalf who always lives for us and is there in heaven interceding on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank and praise you. Lord, that you have granted to us and you have provided for us. Lord, such a high priest, one who is not like the former priests of old who were prevented by death from continuing. Lord, but one who is holy, who is innocent, who is undefiled, who is separated from sinners, one who is exalted above the heavens. Lord, one who is fully God, but who also has taken our human nature to himself, who knows all of our weaknesses, who knows all of our trials. He knows what it is to be tempted because he himself was tempted when he suffered. Lord, we know that he is moved with compassion for his people, that he loves us, that he cares for us, and that he exercises his continual love for us by always interceding for us. Lord, we see that in Jesus Christ and in him taking up the office of high priest, Lord, we see there that there is a solution. Lord, there is an answer to our sin. Lord, that that is the place where we can go and find deliverance. Only in him. And Father, we pray that you would bind our hearts more and more to your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that we might understand, Lord, more and more the great salvation that you have granted to us through him. Father, teach us that every day that we live, Lord, every day that we have fellowship and communion with you, Lord, every day that we have peace with you and that we have been reconciled to you, Lord, that our standing is only based upon Jesus Christ as our high priest. It is only because of him there occupying that office and ministering on our behalf that even today we have any right to draw near to you. Lord, even now we're offering our prayers to you. And yet, Lord, we know that this prayer, Lord, is mixed with much imperfection because it's coming from a, a man of flesh, a man who still has a sin nature, a man whose mind is not 
perfectly occupied and raptured with your glory. Lord, we are not a perfectly spiritual people. But Lord, we remain in this dual state. Lord, a mixture of both spirit and flesh. And so, Lord, we see that so long as this state continues, so long as we remain in this life, and so long as we are waiting for our full and final perfection, Lord, that we are in great need of an advocate before the Father. And we thank you, Lord, that you have provided Jesus Christ the righteous. And that through him, through faith in him, that we can daily draw near to you, that we can offer to you our prayers, that we can say our, our amens to God, that we can worship and praise you, that we can serve you and obey you, and that, Lord, you will receive us in all of our service, Lord, that you will receive it favorably because of what he is doing for us. So, Lord, may we be always convinced, Lord, whether it be a day in which we experience great victory a day in which we exercise great faith, where we walk with you and, Lord, we do those things that are pleasing to you. Lord, may we be reminded that on that day, our standing before you is based always and only upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, may we be reminded as well that on those days where we fail miserably, that, Lord, we are still accepted and we are beloved by you because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. Lord, we know that the flesh, it hates free grace. The flesh hates the wisdom and power of God seen in Jesus Christ crucified. Our flesh is arrogant. It is filled with pride and vanity. And Lord, it seeks to justify itself through its own works. Lord, we pray that you might put our flesh to death and that we might live more and more by faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray today that this salvation you have begun within us, Lord, will you please bring it to perfection. Lord, continue to progress it in this life. We pray that we might grow, that we might mature, that we might daily be conformed more and more to the image of your Son. And then, Lord, we pray that you give to us the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our soul, that which you have promised to us in the life to come. And, Lord, may we live according to these great truths and these great promises. Lord, all that we are and all that we have, Lord, we offer to you. But, Lord, we offer it to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.